The issues of sex abuse, harassment, and domestic violence gained prominence in 2016. In 2017, the Silence Breakers were named the Time Magazine Person of the Year. New stories of suffering and failure to prevent such suffering continue to emerge. We've documented the issues behind the Me Too movement in a past episode of Challenge 2.0. There have also been successes, not enough, but successes nonetheless. Perhaps one sign of success has been the emergence of more people asking, what can we do? What has been done that works? We seek to help answer those questions in this episode of Challenge 2.0, Moving Beyond Me Too. Thank you very much for joining us for Challenge 2.0 and a special thanks to all of our guest panelists for joining us today on this very important topic. Let me introduce them. First, Mary Santi serves as Chancellor for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Seattle and as Executive Director of Human Resources. As you might suspect, those two posts include several responsibilities. Among them is that of coordinating the Safe Environment Program and initiatives that focus on responding to and preventing sexual abuse. Mary, thank you for joining us. Liz Kolklough serves Jewish Family Service in Seattle, both as Director of Counseling and of Project Vora. Project Vora provides guidance and education to support loving and safe relationships and respond to and help prevent domestic violence. Liz, thank you for joining us as well this morning. And Reverend Pat Simpson came back for a second time. She's a repeat guest and we're very grateful for that. Uh, Pat is the senior pastor at University Temple United Methodist Church and serves on the Faith Trust Institute Board of Directors. The Institute is a national, multi-faith, multicultural organization working to end domestic violence and sexual abuse. Pat, thanks for coming back. And I should say this is a follow, as we mentioned earlier, uh, to the previous topic that we did, and it was largely at your impetus that we chose to uh, follow through on this. In that first program on sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and domestic violence, we focused on what can best be described as the very worst examples. I'm wondering if each one of you would recap an example of an experience that crystallized your desire to work in this area. I started active ministry as a pastor in South Bend, Washington, very small town. I was working with a social worker to lead a support group for people experiencing domestic violence. And uh, during that time, one of our group members was murdered by her husband. Mm. And that made an indelible impression on me uh, and was really my introduction to the framework of power and vulnerability that uh, is uh, applicable to all of these issues. Liz? So I actually started in public health earlier on in my career. So I was working in HIV work, um, mm -hmm. both prevention, education, and then treatment for folks living with the virus. And what I noticed was how pervasive domestic violence and sexual violence were mm -hmm. in the community. They weren't discussed at all. And very often, if you were a survivor, you were, you were a pariah in the community and actually more vulnerable to, to a lot of victimization and harm. And the fact that it didn't have any attention in the community was shocking to me, um, given the level of damage it clearly was doing. And Mary? I was uh, studying for my Master of Divinity degree at Seattle University and also working at a parish about 25 years ago. We had an ethics class, and the presenter described how she taught faith formation, and one of her students eventually uh, became her husband, and the marriage failed. 
and she explained that she didn't realize it at the time, but there was such a, a differential of power. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really struck me how important it is to have very, very strong boundaries in ministerial relationships. We're going to be going into much greater detail on the work that you're doing in your perspectives, but I'm wondering if each one of you, uh, however you'd like to begin, could give us just a brief overview of what it is you're doing now. We introduced you with the organizations you work with, mm -hmm. but perhaps just explain a little bit about what your projects are. Mm -hmm. Liz, why don't you start oh, out? Sure. Um, so I, I direct Project Avora, which is our domestic violence advocacy program, and we, we work with survivors of DV and as well as their children, and we'll help them really at any stage that they're at, if they're in the relationship, if they're trying to leave, or if they're still experiencing victimization after leaving. Um, and so we, we encounter domestic violence and sexual assault a lot in that regard. And then I also manage our counseling program, and we've increasingly worked with survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and childhood sexual abuse mm -hmm. on trauma recovery. So that's what we do. So I oversee our safe environment program, which involves background checks and uh, training for prevention and also recognizing signs of um, sexual abuse or harassment. Uh, we also have affiliations with several um, other social service agencies and um, affiliations with uh, places like King County Sexual Assault Resource Center. It's one of our, our major partners. And then we are also really committed to helping those who have been harmed in the past by uh, clergy employees or volunteers of the church and um, offer counseling for them and, and do what we can to help in their healing process. And Pat, tell us a little bit more about Faith Trust. Uh, Faith Trust was originally called the Center for the Prevention of Sexual and Domestic Violence, and that really describes the breadth of our work. Uh, it's mainly through training uh, we work with uh, secular domestic violence providers mm -hmm. on their religious liter uh, literacy uh, so they can work with uh, people in their programs who have faith issues. Uh, we work with Navy chaplains uh, on domestic violence and sexual abuse. Uh, but the intersection with the other part of my professional life is we do a lot of work to train clergy and other religious leaders uh, to wield that spiritual power they have in a way that does no harm mm -hmm. to their people. And in the United Methodist Church, we've used those materials for many, many years to do mandatory uh, quadrennial training for our clergy. It struck me as I was listening to your stories that you were offering, uh, your first experience, what drew you into this field, that these are stories, these are experiences that aren't easy to hear. They're not easy to deal with, uh, just on a human level. Uh, for people out in our viewing audience that might be encountering this, how did you cope with this, especially early on? What keys would you offer if somebody gets presented with this? What worked for you? You're speaking to what we would now call a, a secondary trauma, mm -hmm. uh, as the, the caregivers <coughs> and the helpers uh, carry the weight of the stories that they have heard from others. Uh, I think what's been helpful to me is uh, getting active and working in prevention has given me a sense of agency about making this at least incrementally better over mm -hmm. the years. Um, so I think for me, I have an amazing team. And it's wonderful to go to work every day and work with such dedicated people that are really trying to prevent and allow for healing from, from, from gender-based violence. And we lean heavily on each other mm -hmm. because this is really hard to hold. And actually having a group of people that have come together 
it, it allows for the ongoing healing of secondary trauma that's necessary to keep doing this work. So I think that piece, and then also seeing the resilience in the survivors and the children that we work yeah. with. Mm -hmm. um, we hear egregious stories, but we also see amazing, amazing healing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, that's why I go to work, is because I get to see that every day. Well, I think about it, I guess, not surprisingly from a Catholic context, um, and, and I see it as a possibility of a resurrection story um, with the abuse survivors that we are dealing with. The abuse happened, um, generally speaking, decades and decades ago. Mm -hmm. So we can't do anything about that. We can't undo it, but what we can do is work with them and help to bring them toward healing and also um, use that as the impetus for prevention and making sure that not just in the Catholic Church, but hopefully throughout society, that eventually we can eradicate, you know, the, the, the sin of child sexual abuse. When you speak of this, and you've already alluded to this, is that necessity of creating a safe space. Somebody's been violated. They're reluctant to come out with their story. How do you make them feel safe to relate that and to get help? We have, um, we have a hotline and um, you know, people will call the hotline and we have a pastoral outreach coordinator who is very uh, experienced in you know, helping people uh, deal with what has happened to them and what is the best avenue for them to proceed in terms of seeking healing. For us, it's about normalizing the experience of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, we see folks taking on a lot of responsibility for the trauma that has happened to them and feeling like something is wrong with them. And so the thing that, that we try to focus on at all times is, is helping them recognize that there's nothing wrong with you. Something mm -hmm. happened to you and we're working towards healing in that, mm -hmm. but, but you didn't do anything to inherently create the situation. And that's a message that we try to give to people time and time again. Yeah. To speak in a smaller congregational context, I, I have experienced the power of preaching as a way to create safety. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very common experience for pastors to preach about domestic violence and then in the next week find out that uh, there are survivors in the congregation he or she didn't know about. I've had the same experience uh, speaking from the pulpit about childhood sexual abuse uh, and had a chance then to help those survivors know each other in a way they hadn't before. So simply breaking the silence has great power. Which is part of what we've seen as the power of the Me Too movement as well. One common response, and we've seen it in news accounts, whatever venue they may be coming out, is people will respond, I can't imagine so-and-so doing something like that. What perspectives would you offer on that? Well, the so-and-sos who get away with it, particularly for a long time, uh, tend to be people who are very skilled at projecting that uh, vibrant, attractive, trustable persona. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly the predators and serial abusers. So it's part of their shtick uh, that it's hard to suspect them. Yeah, I completely agree with that. We, we see quite a bit the, the people who perpetrate harm are in fact can be very, very charming mm -hmm. and very enigmatic um, and are often people who hold a lot of power in their communities. And so they're right. quite prominent in their communities very often. Not always, but very often. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I think that given that persona, it is easy for people to think that what you present to the world is, is fully accurate and not necessarily um, give credence to a person that might not be as prominent in the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been amazed over and over again standing in front of congregations with with perpetrators who have admitted their, what, what they have done even, and the, the folks in the congregation, and it's, it, it's stronger the more charismatic the perpetrator is, um, defending that individual. I might just follow up on that, and when you, as you all pointed out, these are very often people with considerable influence uh, that have a network of their own that might tend to serve to suppress this, how do you go about circumventing that? Any particular strategies that uh, come to mind? I would say uh, what we have seen to be effective is not focusing on intent, but focusing on behaviors, measurable and observable mm -hmm. behaviors. And so, for example, uh, rather than saying, well, he's giving so-and-so full frontal hugs, but I know he's a really good guy, so it's okay, mm -hmm. we really stress in our training Full frontal hugs are not okay in ministerial positions, and if you see that, you don't worry about the intent. It's intent. It's against the policy, and it's wrong, mm -hmm. and so it needs to be reported. I would say uh, it's also important to go deeper than policies and rules. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, for those of us who have positions of influence, and this could spill over into the secular realm mm -hmm. as well, uh, to always be watching not only our own intent, but the impact of our behavior, and be willing to ask and learn. In our trainings, it's been really helpful uh, to have different uh, segments of our community represented. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, co-training with a Korean pastor uh, and uh, talking with him uh, in front of the group about the different meanings of a bow, a handshake, a touch, a hug mm -hmm. uh, in a Korean church or an Anglo church. And that sparked a much broader conversation that spanned uh, the meaning of these things across generations. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we just need to work hard to watch all the time. I, yeah, I do think naming the power in the room is mm -hmm. really important, mm -hmm. both in terms of where your individual status is, but, you know, there's gender power, there's racial power, there's disability power, mm -hmm. there's, there's ageist power. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to, to, to acknowledge that, I think, is huge when it comes to thinking about these individual interactions people have with each other. Because a hug for somebody who's been through a lot of victimization mm -hmm. with somebody in a position of power is going to mean something very, very different between True. the two people. True. Yeah. So far, we've been talking about this being a two-person dynamic, uh, the victim and the victimizer. Mm -hmm. Is this really, when you take a larger global view of this, is it really a two-person issue or is the core problem much bigger than that? Oh, even in a congregation it's bigger. Mm -hmm. If you have a, a predator coming into a congregation, say seeking uh, unsupervised access to children, uh, even with a good structure in place, mm -hmm. uh, with many protective windows and rules and ratios and background checks, uh, that person may begin to groom others in the congregation who are the gatekeepers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for a little exception to the rules, a chance to drive this kid home alone, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, so a whole group of people can be uh, 
recruited into this effort unwittingly. And so everybody needs to be vigilant. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think just, just societally, we, we fundamentally believe that domestic violence and sexual violence behavior is learned. Mm -hmm. right? you, you, it's learned through all of these different aspects of the way that society is built. Because if we think about it, DV was only a crime, what, as of 50 years ago? Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're on top of centuries and centuries of this being permissive behavior. Right. And even if we're not just talking about something as egregious as rape or assault, mm -hmm. there are all of these things that come in between. And I think that's all built up into this huge culture that now we're only just now starting to recognize and try to dismantle. Mary, what's your perspective? Well, I also just think that the normalization of, of highly sexualized behavior through, mm -hmm. you know, TV, media, advertisements, mm -hmm. um, all of those sorts of things also contribute to this issue. Well, and I think that brings up an excellent point, and that is we're talking about dealing with us at the time it occurs. But it seems, and I've heard many people address this issue, you really need to go to the way uh, girls are raised and what expectations are placed on them and the expectations boys have. Let's talk first, perhaps, of girls. What are the key points as you're fulfilling your respective roles, and even as you're just thinking of, gee, I wish we'd see more of this, what do girl, young girls need to learn as they're growing up from their parents, teachers, or whoever they're key roles, uh, role models might be. Anybody want to tackle that first? Well, to put it in a theological context, not just my body belongs to me, but I uh, am a person created in the image of God, mm -hmm. uh, and I am worthy of respect. I also think it, it speaks to a little bit of my former point that we're really just at the beginning mm -hmm. of this. And so I think we've got some of the language down around gender equity and um, there is some beginning encouragement of, of girls to, to not feel siloed into the gender expectations. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're only at the beginning. So even if we've got the language down, all of the stuff that's gone underneath is still there. Right. So I think what I would tell young girls that if you feel uncomfortable or if you feel like something is off, you're probably not imagining it. Mm -hmm. It's probably there. And we've got a lot of work to do to, to keep going. Um, and so even though like, there's still a lot of work to do, there's, there's hope in that because look how far we've come just in a small amount of time. And, and I also think that, and this is true for both girls and boys, that it's really important that they, they have trusted adults that they can have ongoing conversations mm -hmm. with um, about these mm -hmm. things and um, feel safe talking to them about, you know, whether it's a parent or an aunt or an uncle or pastor, you know, whoever that might be. Mm -hmm. So that brings up the other side of the question, and that is, how do we need to change the way boys are raised to become men, the expectations of manhood? You know, we've heard in news coverage and past stories, oh, that's just locker room talk, or that's to be expected. And I think the understanding now is that's not to be expected. What would you suggest to parents that they need to do to raise their boys differently? I think they need to model mutual respect. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's probably the most important thing other than also keeping the lines of communication open. 
Um, so I was saying how we have the language for girls. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have the language for boys yet um, in terms of talking about what is masculinity versus toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I know that's sort of a larger overarching phrase, but what I mean by that is boys are, they're not taught to have like the spectrum of emotions that are allowable. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're taught to be strong. They're taught to, to anger is okay. They are taught that sports are okay. They're taught that a promiscuity is okay, but they're not taught that crying is okay. They're not taught that, that showing empathy is okay. They're not, and that's not, again, like, there's got to be intention there. How do we raise our boys to be allowed to be complete human beings? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think boys have permission for that yet. Mm -hmm. I'm going to again uh, go across the gender uh, spectrum, across the uh, spectrum of sexual orientation, and say that Christian churches, I think, have done a very bad job of encouraging our own children and youth to hold their sexual lives and their spiritual lives together as one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, insofar as we stay silent about their sexuality uh, and don't provide uh, good education and a form for them to discuss uh, their sexual lives, uh, you know, they got, they got their faith and they got their locker room. They got their, uh, I'm made in the image of God but in this situation, I do not deserve to be respected. Mm -hmm. uh, that bifurcation is a really bad thing. And I think we've got a long way to go in uh, helping kids have the, the sense of a whole self and then the backbone to take that into a toxic culture. And part of it seems to be providing good role models, be it mm -hmm. uh, what is a good role model for a young girl, young woman, or a young man uh, or boy? And it's a matter of maybe lifting those up as examples. Would you agree with that? Sure. Mm -hmm. Any way that uh, if an organization is out there thinking, how do we go about doing that? Anybody have some suggestions on that? So I was actually just in a prevention training last week, and they mm -hmm. were emphasizing the value of older adolescents and young adults, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether they're college recruited or from a young adult group, um, because they were really emphasizing how powerful that age group is for adolescents, right. um, even more powerful than adults. Mm -hmm. Because as an adult, I can't relate as well to what's going on for a teenager right now. I have no idea what it's like to grow up in a social media generation, but a college student does. Mm -hmm. um, somebody who's 18, 19, 20 does. Um, and I think the modeling that can happen there can be the most possible impact on a 14, 15, 16 year old today. Yes, because we can be so clueless yeah, across those generation <laughs> gaps. But here's another kind of modeling that happens in that um, to have those 18 or 19 or 20 year olds also uh, interacting with younger teens and kids with their own good boundaries, Absolutely. understanding mm -hmm. uh, the influence and the power they wield uh, can be a good example. Social media has become so pervasive on that, and it does seem that you need to get uh, brothers, sisters, or uh, people of similar age to be able to have that toolkit, if you will, to be able to respond and advise them at that age. I mean, the other thing that I would add, though, is we're seeing it. 
right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing so much youth leadership out right now and in, in across the board, including the Me Too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's really heartening because it is, I think, young people who've taken a really prominent platform in this movement specifically. That would be a good point to bring up, and that is we tend to focus on the negatives. We focus on the problems, and they're there. That's why we're doing this program. But maybe if each of you could give an example of a really positive change, transformation, or example that you've seen. Well, I get to see it all the time because I get to see recovery happen mm -hmm. in, in all of the work that we do, um, where, where people are starting to really, really both understand their experience, understand mm -hmm. that they're not making it up, find a space where they're feeling heard, where they're feeling safe, um, find a space where they can, they can process through their trauma and move beyond it and not, not be defined by it. Um, and so I, I get to see that all the time and it is really heartening. I see that too, uh, and um, to have survivors uh, move through their own process and then uh, become mentors and helpers to their peers mm -hmm. uh, and to those who are in the midst of trauma, uh, is yeah, that's a long-standing pattern. A lot of people have gone into these professions uh, after their own experiences. Uh, and use that life knowledge as the, the energy behind their own uh, helping activity, uh, whether as volunteers or as professionals. We have just scratched the surface on this. You can't possibly do this justice in the space of one program. So I would not only like to thank each of you for participating today in this program, but also to come back, keep us aware of what might be some other angles to look at this. And I'm, I don't doubt at all that you provided some inspiration for the people that are watching, giving them a new idea of how to respond to this, perhaps what they can do to change or to affect change in their lives. We thank you very much for watching this episode of Challenge 2.0. We hope to see you again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Puccia. Ian Olson is the production assistant. 